0: you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do. We're going to find our way in John chapter 11 this morning. We're going to look at the first 44 verses, but we're just going to read to get us going from verses 17 through 27, and you can hear the word Lord there with me. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are back again continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. And uh, today we have a treat as we think about death. Yes, a treat as we think about the topic of death. Probably don't usually hear it framed that way, but I hope you'll see before this is over with why I have done so. You know, as a pastor... um, i am tasked with preaching shepherding discipling general care of the church and part of that general care of churches is, is some uh, in shorthand ways to marry and bury um weddings and funerals done at this point in my ministry i've done way more weddings than i've done funerals but i've done many funerals nonetheless and there's always this tension in my heart when i come to do a funeral um, as to what the you know as to how to officiate that brings comfort to the family of the of the of the one who's passed and then from time to time I may even be asked by someone to do a funeral for someone that we are fairly certain left this life without Christ and so you come to those moments where you are seeking to speak honestly about what actually is and what has transpired about the reality of death, but yet at the same time try to impart comfort, try to impart hope, try to point people to Christ. And then you other funerals I've done have been much more joyful. And, and yeah, I mean that. Like There, there is joy in, in some funerals. Not that there's not real grief, not that there's not real sadness, not that there's not real hardship in the passing of the person, but when you do a funeral for someone that has obviously lived for Christ, it is it is. Like, there is a... I, you, can't even, you can't even quantify the difference between a family who's grieving the passing of someone who's left this life without Jesus and the one who has. You just can't quantify the two. And, and really, when you start thinking about funerals and you start thinking about death, it, it does make us have to ask some hard questions, does it not? That so much of our life, if we're really honest with ourselves, and if I'm honest with myself, is about avoiding death altogether. To try to do our best to stretch this life out and to wring this life, drive everything I can get out of it, and to avoid death, to avoid the topic of death for as much as I possibly can. But the question still remains, no matter how much I try to do that, no matter how much you may try to do that, I still have to deal with this topic of death. You do too. You have to ask yourself... What do I believe? What do I believe about the nature of life as itself? What do I believe about life beyond this life? And so typically when people face this topic, death and grief, they usually face it with one of three perspectives. Hopeless grief. By the way, a lot of our world deals with death with hopeless grief. There's hope filled grief. So you can grieve, honestly, the loss, but yet still remain hope filled. And then, but more often than not, and I think this is portrayed in our popular culture, indifference. Just blind indifference. But the Christian who lives in light of what Christ has accomplished for us through his life, death, resurrection offers us something more beautiful, something more profound, something that calls us to live with deeper faith and deeper comfort than the world itself can offer us, the world itself even tries to pursue. And today as we look at this passage, we will see this tension between the disciples and their ignorance about death and even their sometimes a uh, trying to avoid the topic and avoid it altogether, in that juxtaposition against the, the sisters of Lazarus who've watched their brother pass and what we find in them is, even though both of them respond a little differently, is faith, Amen. trust, hope. It's going to be quite amazing. And that Jesus calls his people to deep abiding faith, and comfort. And so, you know, I like to summarize my sermon in one sentence because I think it's helpful because it gives me a target for my sermons. Otherwise, we can go a lot of different directions, right? Through death and grief, the true believer lives by faith in Christ who is our true resurrection in life. Simple, clear, hopefully to the point, but it is the very substance of everything we are as Christians. Through death and grief, the true believer lives by faith in Christ, who is our true resurrection and life. So, there's three three things I want to show you this morning from this text: the duplicity of our own response to death. I'll explain what that word means in a minute. Then we'll look at the key to how we are to respond to death and grief, and in the end, we're going to look at the authority over death and grief so duplicity key and authority if you want to shorthand it that way let's look for a minute at just the first few verses 1 through 16 um, here uh, about our duplicity or the duplicity that oftentimes comes with our response to death and and so let me just kind of give you the update kind of where we are verses 1 through 7 we find jesus is responding to the news about lazarus's condition and the news comes to him hey he's very ill in other words, this is an announcement that he will pass soon. This is not an announcement necessarily or an encouragement of Jesus to come back and uh, do some miraculous event. They are just announcing to him, your friend, the one whom you love, Jesus, he's about to pass. And um, at this point, we need to understand that J- Jesus has left Judea, which is the surrounding country of Jerusalem. And the reason was, because we see this at the end of chapter 12, chapter 10, is that Jesus is not popular anymore. Jesus, is, as much as everything, everyone loves all the miracles Jesus does, his truths do not, they, they do not receive his truths. And so by the time they're done in chapter 10, man, they're ready to stone him. They, and, he, and he's running out of town. Um, he's moved, he's left. And, and, and most likely, although the text doesn't tell us, his, his home base was Galilee, so he, he had moved more north um, kind of to his... Uh, If you want to say his home base is kind of where he kind of camped out, although he himself never had a home to lay his head. is what the Bible tells us. And so um, Jesus hears this news and his response seems, at least to me, a little off-putting. It seems a little callous. What does he say? But when Jesus heard it, verse 4, the illness will not lead to death. Now that seems odd. This is an announcement. That he's going to pass to him well no this illness will not lead to death it is for the glory of god so that the son of god may be glorified through it so it sounds almost opportunistic it sounds a little callous it sounds a little indifferent it sounds a little obtuse like it's really jesus with everything you've done now you're going to get you're going to get kind of like okay i'm gonna put my arm's length out here and you're, you're gonna be like what is this about you know these seems to be the first response i feel when i read this text But that would be a short-sighted understanding because in verse five it tells us very clearly how jesus really feels about this family it says jesus loved martha and he loved her sister and he loved lazarus he had a deep affection for this family He, he he was not making these decisions he was not saying these things he wasn't pontificating theologically in some cold way he actually loves this family and even though this family he loves is facing some deep grief And facing some pain, he knew that it was going to turn out for the glory of Jesus, and he knew that it was going to turn out for their good in the end. So just please make sure we see that. He has this deep affection, so much so that as the story continues, he is kind of waiting, and then he announces to his disciples, hey, we're going to go back. Uh, Our brother Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let me hold off on that explanation that just for a second. But he's, he's ready to, like, he's not afraid to go back to the very place that has, where people are like, threatening to stone him. This tells us all kinds of wonderful things about how he loves his people. But apparently his disciples haven't caught on to that love because what are the disciples' response to Jesus um, in this moment? Uh, hey, Jesus, you do remember what, just transpired there right um, those guys uh they wanted to stone you and frankly if we hang out with you too much longer we're probably going to be on the next on the hit list right they, they are being incredibly honest and listen can we be honest for a second i'll be honest with you like i don't sympathize with that I don't care who you are in this room, there is something uh, uh, something about trying to preserve yourself that just hits us all. And so you can understand why they would be concerned with Jesus' response to this whole situation. But nonetheless, here's the news, he waits two more days and then makes the announcement to the disciples that they're going to go back and they're going to be with their friends back in Judea. But it's their response to Jesus that actually shows us what's really going on in these first 16 verses. That it's not really about Jesus' seemingly, though not accurately, callous response. It's actually about theirs. It's about their obtuseness. It's about, the word I'm going to use here, duplicity. Right? They themselves are indifferent to death. They themselves have shut them off to feeling anything towards death in some capacity the word duplicity not a hard word to understand but it's just double-mindedness but with kind of a mask on it's like you're pretending to be something that you're not you say one thing but you actually believe another well we, now i think if we all look at ourselves honestly we see all kinds of that in realities in our life right what we show other people versus what's really going on in the inner parts of our our life but it shows up so much so clearly, when Jesus tells them that Lazarus would fall asleep, and look at their response, right, it's, it's um, well, uh, he'll recover. He's just taking a nap, Jesus. I mean, everyone needs a good nap every once in a while, Jesus. Don't you need a good nap? How many of you guys are going to go home and try getting get a nap this afternoon after church? Shalom. All right, so I, I, I'm borrowing that from my friend Chuck. He, he always says that to me in a text or something. But I hope you get that opportunity. I, I probably won't today. But, um, but duplicity is that double-mindedness. It's that masking that kind of goes on with us. And, and when Jesus tells them, our brother, which, by the way, has fallen asleep, which, again, by the way, is one of the most common ways they would say refer to death. So the fact that they've just kind of bypassed this and looking beyond the obvious meaning of what Jesus is trying to say here, that he actually has to come back and actually say it specifically, uh, he's dead, guys. The fact that he had to say it that plainly shows you how far removed they have removed their hearts from from grief and death. How far they will go to protect themselves from having to feel pain and suffering. And I don't know about you, but that strikes a blow on me. Because I can see some of those things in my own life. I can see how much of my life is given to protect myself from those things. And so Jesus then responds to their ignorance, to their obtuseness, their, frankly, just goofiness. How did you not see this? <laughs> and so he responds to them not, and tells them, like, look, we're not going back there to be sentimental. Like, I'm not going back there just because I, I kind of have a, you know, a, a deeper affection for them and other people. I'm not just doing this because they're my buddies. They're going back there, and he says, and let's just pick it up here in, um, in verse 10, or verse 9, excuse me, and Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go awaken him. In other words, what Jesus is trying to help them see in this effort to go back to be with Mary and Martha is two things. One is, his public ministry is not over with yet. This idea of reference to 12 hours a day are still there. It's referencing his own public ministry, his own earthly ministry, which has not concluded yet. And if you haven't seen this or not, like they've tried to make attempts on Jesus' life many times so far. But until God has himself ordained that Jesus' public ministry is over, we are assured that God will accomplish and Jesus will accomplish everything that he has accomplished before that time comes. And and the same is true for you and I because to the degree that we trust God's sovereign goodness, we can trust that whether it's life or death, we can trust that God will be with us because everything that happens in our life is an appointment by God. And that's what he wants to show them in this lesson. They know his public ministry isn't over, but by the way, in chapter 11 marks the kind of a transition in Jesus' ministry. Because from chapter 12 on, guess what we get to do? Jesus, until he's arrested, spends the rest of his time from chapter 12 to chapter 18 in private ministry with his disciples. He doesn't do any more public ministry. He's spending time discipling them and teaching them because he knows the hour is about to come where he will be arrested, he will be tried unjustly, and he will have to die for sins that he did not commit. But he will gloriously be resurrected as we all know. And so this this kind of transition here also helps us understand what Jesus is trying to say. Look, my the, my public ministry is not yet. We're under the assurance of God, and and, and it's trying to prepare them saying, "Okay, well, look, I'm getting ready to transition to a time with you for the rest of my remainder of my earthly life to spend with you. And here's what i got to do for you. i got to prepare you for life after my resurrection. Amen. i got to prepare you because death is not going away. Suffering and grief are not going away. They're just not. And for the Christian, there's just no place in a Christian that tries to avoid gr- grief and death and suffering. There's just no place for it because it's not going away until Jesus returns finally and fully one day in his second coming, right? What things we saw this morning, glorious day, and even so come. How, how wonderful those are remind us that, 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 that until Jesus comes, the reality is these, this death is a reality we're going to have to face and we're going to have to wrestle with. What lies ahead for these disciples as Jesus is leading them? is to expose their duplicity so that they can actually obtain life and to live fruitful lives and to live lives with deep faith in the the sovereignty um, and the sovereign appointment of God for their lives, both now with Jesus present and one day when Jesus is not. What a word for us today, amen? We wait upon Jesus to come, but His Spirit is present with us and we are going to abide by God's sovereign appointment until He has determined those those things to end. And so their fear, their pushback, their kind of uh, indifference to death needs to be exposed, and it needs to be exposed in us. See, death is, as we'll see here in the next point, death is the pathway by which God will display His greatest glory. And that Life of the life of death the, one, the lives that we have lived without Christ they must come to an end so that we can actually have new life death does not pose a real threat for the Christian as scary and as grief stricken as we can be when we face it it does not pose a real threat for us and that leads us into this second point the key, what is the key to facing death then? So Jesus now, is his disciples, they arrive in Bethany. We see this in verse 17, and, um, and it's very clear from the very beginning that as he comes into Bethany, uh, Lazarus is dead. It notes very specifically he's been dead for four days. Now that point there is very important because it's eliminating any doubt as to whether or not this was some kind of sham. Almost everyone... In their day and in ancient societies believed that that you didn't really start the mourning process until at least three days after to verify the death of a person. So four days was sufficient enough. So convinced were the people that he was dead that the mourners come from Jerusalem to mourn with Mary and Martha. So if there's any question in your heart or any of these little people who like to twist and manipulate scripture, please understand here, there is no magic wand that Jesus is doing. There's no, there's no, um, there's no illusions going on, no sleight of hand thing going on here whatsoever. Jesus arrives, and it's as plainly stated, John does here, right? He's been dead for four days. He's really dead. What appears to be death has gotten a victory. Now, of course, we know that that's not true, right? And we're going to see that very clearly here. And so Martha hears about Jesus coming, and she didn't even let Jesus get into town, and she goes running out to Jesus on the outskirts of the town outside of Bethany. Again, it's about 22 miles or so outside of Jerusalem, so we're in the metropolitan area, if you will, of Jerusalem. She runs out to Jesus, and her words to Jesus, man, they're so powerful. If you'd have been here, Jesus. If you would have been here, Jesus, he wouldn't have died. Now, again, upon first glance, that may appear like she's upset at him. That she's accusing him of, in, of being indifferent to their need, her need, Lazarus's need. If you'd have been here, Jesus, he wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that if you, it, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. That part of the statement needs to be viewed needs to be seen and we need to look at the first part of the statement and view of the second part of the statement because what she's doing here is not accusatory it's not anger it's not frustration but it's hope-filled grief she knows she's been taught properly that death doesn't get the last word now, she doesn't know the realization of it. She doesn't know the full substance of it, which Jesus is about to reveal to her. But she knows that, that her hope has some, she has, her grief has some level of hope in it. Amen? So she tells him what she knows. She's regurgitating like the good Sunday school uh, child she was, everything she's learned from her, good, her faithful Sunday school teacher. She knows it. Now, she may not quite get the full depth of it yet, but she knows it. And then Jesus' response to her is, Lazarus will rise again. It's, it's, it seems very similar to what we might, the counsel we might give of someone had passed away, right? The bereaved. Jesus will, I mean, Lazarus will rise again, Jesus said. And her response, again, just dives in deeper into what she's been taught. You're right. He will be in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus, so typical of him, can't leave it there, can he? He just can't leave it there. What a wonderful confession. Any of us who heard this from someone would be like, man, my heart's full because I, I got to hear like the... the, the, the uh, uh, the bereaving of someone who's passed, like, expressed deep hope. But Jesus says, I need to give you deeper confidence in that hope. And what's his response to her? Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die Do you believe this? Don't you love this? The power of the resurrection, according to Jesus' own words, is both for the dead and the living. Though he die, he may live, and though he live, he may die. He wants to drive Martha deeper into the very things that she has her faith in. Friends, your faith, my faith, should never dissolve into a passive faith it is an active faith he he wants us to constantly grow into things that we might know and might know very very well but we are to continue nonetheless until our last breath pouring into this so that we might have a not a not a passive faith but a A deeply active faith. That's why he asks her the question, do you believe this? What is Jesus doing? He's holding her accountable for her confession. That's why we do what we do here. It's why we have statements of faith. It's why we have confessions. Why? Not because we're trying to play gotcha with anyone who might be off in their theology, but because we are holding you accountable to the hope for you as you face life that's filled with death and suffering and grief. And Jesus looks at her and says, do you believe this? He is looking her square in the eyes. And look what her confession is. Oh, her confession. I mean, 101, right? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now look, we got to note a couple things here before we move on to the next portion here. Before we even get to Mary. Number one is... To date, in John's gospel, this is the clearest confession about who Jesus is that he has articulated. In other words, friends, anything less than this ceases to be Christian. This is why we have the creeds. This is why you got to love the creeds. The, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Why? Because they were simple articulations of eternal and substantive truth. As much as I love the confessions, I never outgrow the creeds. Keep it simple, stupid, right? Amen. Amen. And Jesus' is, her confession is keep it simple, stupid. That's the first thing we want to note about this, is that this is like the sum total of what it means to be Christian. You are the Christ, the Son of God, divine member of the triune God, sent, to heaven, sent from heaven into earth, and you are coming into the world. You are a God who has condescended to your poor and frail man, men and women of your choosing. Beautiful, isn't it? But I also have to note one other thing here. The confession, a confession like this has happened three times so far in John. By the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, by the disciples at the end of chapter 8, and now here again with Mary. Anyone want to note what I might be want to zero in on this? That two of the three most specific confessions of who Jesus is were made by Who? women oh, why wow, is that important are we making something out of nothing here no we are not no we are not the fact that one it was a samaritan woman but the fact that she was samaritan who made the first most clear declaration of who jesus was is astounding in and of itself and the fact that his disciples didn't run off from him when he said don't you want to leave like everyone else is leaving i like who are we going to go to you have the words of life But then Martha, again, makes it crystal clear here. It's so important. It's so important. Look, I believe 100% in the word of God given to the people of God. And I will defend it. And I will teach and help our church live under the clear teachings of it. And so you know about where we are as a church. We believe that that God has given men and women into the institution of family, and there's a there's there's a there's an order to some degree there, whatever, and we can we kind of work through some of those things. There's also the order to the church, and we believe that men are qualified men, not all men, qualified men are called to be pastors and elders in the church. But I'm fearful sometimes with some of the way we talk about men and women, is that we we treat women as if they are subservient to men. There's this whole new rise in this patriarchal movement that's going on out there. And listen, patriarchy is not biblical. I don't mind saying it clearly. It's not biblical. Because it's taking things in Scripture and they're expanding on them and making them say things that the Scriptures do not teach. To to whatever degree we're going to hold to the natural order that God has put in place in terms of the home and in the church, yes and amen. We live by faith in those things. We may not understand them, but we live by faith in them. But let me make it very clear here. I am a brother to many sisters before I'm a pastor to many congregants who happen to be female. My relationship with my wife is first a brother and sister in Christ relationship before it is a husband and wife. Because one day the husband and wife relationship is going to go away. And so we want to make sure we keep these things clear, that we we say what Scripture says, but have enough humble faith to believe and not try to embed things in in between the words. Why? Because it's very clear here, right? Of all the people you would expect in this entire engagement to have gotten their act together, wouldn't you think the disciples would be the ones that have the most clear confession of who Jesus is? Yet they're the ones who are the most, as I said earlier, duplicitous. You can't argue the fact that John doesn't have some level of intention in this and that he uses Martha's declaration as one of the most clear declarations about who Jesus is. And Again, it's not reading too much into the passage to say that this is part of it, that Jesus himself doesn't treat Martha as his servant. He serves her. I am the resurrection of life. What does that mean? I've come to give my life for you so that you might have new life. So let's read what the scriptures say, and let's be very careful to not read in more than what the scriptures say. That can be awful dangerous, awful dangerous, because then eventually you get your mind and your eyes off the gospel. That's dangerous all the way around. So Mary, having had this wonderful engagement with Jesus, leaves and goes and gets her sister, and she tells the sister there in verse uh, what twenty eight. Um, He's calling for you, Mary. He's here, and he's calling for you, saying the teacher is here, and he's calling for you there in verse 28. And when she heard it, all these people who are there grieving with her, she just gets up abruptly and runs out of the room. She runs for Jesus. Now, I love the distinction between Martha and Jesus. I mean, Martha and Mary, right? Because we know this in other stories when, when, you know, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus learning and Martha's the one out there cleaning dutifully out here. So you kind of get the picture of who these two sisters are, right? Like Martha's like the good Sunday school dutiful, like a little Sunday school, you know, I'm going to learn all my catechisms, I'm going to learn all my Bible verses. And Martha doesn't, we don't know, we don't, we don't see a lot about that. All we know is that she's a mess. She's weeping. She did, she, but then she just gets up, frantically runs out of the house and goes to be with Jesus, but Jesus welcomes her faith too. Praise be to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. That, 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 here's this messy younger sister of Martha who we don't know. She may have had it all buttoned up, but whatever it was, she's a mess at this moment and she's running out to Jesus with all of her burden. She loves Jesus. And she knows that Jesus is the only one who can enter into her grief. Why? Because he's the one who is the resurrection and the life. Now, she may not have been able to say that, and she may not have articulated that in this passage, but she took what she had to Jesus. Friends, wherever you are today, take what you have to Jesus. He'll receive you. He'll receive you. And so when she comes out to him, and then, of course, all these mourners come out with her to see what's going on they're kind of saying okay where is she going and they go out there and they find that she's met with Jesus she's meeting with Jesus and they're all crying they're in tears they're grieving they're weeping she's weeping the crowds weeping and Jesus looks on and he's it's, the text tells us that he is moved and he's troubled in verse 33 he's moved and he's troubled what moves Jesus? Compassion. Compassion for his people who are hurting. Jesus didn't save you because you're strong enough, Jesus saves those because you're willing to admit you're, you're too weak. Jesus doesn't save the strong. He saves the weak. So he's moved by this scene of mourning. But he's troubled too. Why? Well, we can only do a little bit of work on this. But he's troubled because what he's... I mean, who is he? He's God. And why would God not be troubled... At the effects of death on his people he looks around and he sees his people being ravaged by death and suffering and he and he and he's troubled by that and righteously so not only is he near and compassionate to you he is your righteousness whereby when you can't muster up enough righteousness on your own he's the one who will judge death finally and fully for us amen He's troubled, but he's also troubled because as he watches these people weep and cry and mourn, he knows they don't have the tools to grieve well. These people who come from Jerusalem to be with Mary and Martha, by the way, got there before Jesus did. So they, they, they mourning, it wasn't like the mourning was empty, it was just that their mourning was incomplete. And so their comfort that they could provide for Mary and Martha was insufficient. And Jesus says he's burdened and he's troubled because he's about to come and bring sufficient comfort for the bereaved. Sufficient comfort for the grieved. This is who Jesus is. You see the comfort, you see the compassion, but you see the judgment and the righteousness on the Two sides of the same coin for Jesus. It's the same way in which Jesus, in other passages, would look over Jerusalem and says, Woe to you, Jerusalem, for your ways. But then the next breath, he'd say, but he weeps over his people who are like lost sheep looking for a shepherd. He treats you in the same way. In our deepest place where we don't know how to grieve, he's righteous. And he is going to, has, and will continually be fully, finally judge death for us. But until then, he will be our comfort. He will be our compassion. Again, the juxtaposition between the disciples earlier in the passage and these two sisters is just staggering, is it not? Just absolutely staggering. And so now we hit the linchpin. Now, I told you that John has been built off of seven signs. This is the seventh sign. This is the pinnacle. Jesus demonstrating in our third point his authority over life and death. So he asks in verse 35, where have you laid him? 34, sorry. Where have you laid him? And they said, come and let us see. And, of course, at this point, everyone's weeping and mourning. And in verse 38... He goes to the tomb, and he does literally the unthinkable. Because you just didn't mess with dead bodies in Jesus' day. That was an unclean thing. So what he asks them is, scandalous, remove the stone. And it's Martha in her good Sunday school kind of manner going, "Uh, Jesus, I need to alert you about something. He's going to stink by this point. His body's in full-on decay, Jesus. But it's Jesus, even when Martha makes the clearest declaration of himself, who has to go back and say, Do you believe again? Didn't I tell you if you believed that you would see the glory of God, he says here in verse 38-39? Uh, Didn't I tell you this? Didn't I call you to active faith, Martha? Are you so quick now to forget? No, Martha, don't forget that faith, active faith, is all you have. Friends, look at me. And listen, let's listen closely here. I've said this before. There is any manner of people out there who want to tell the church and Christians what we're supposed to be doing in the world. Let me tell you what we're supposed to be doing in the world. Living by active faith. And that God gets the most glory from us. You know, you hear the catechism. What is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is what? Glorify God and to, and enjoy Him forever. How do we glorify God? By living out our profession. That's it. It's actually quite stunningly simple. Yet we make it so complicated, do we not? Yes, there's going to be times when we have to defend the truth and stand on the truth and uh, choose to live by this and not by the truths of the world, that's for sure. But we're not first and foremost called to defend the Bible or defend God because God needs no defending. No, we are called as his people to reveal who God is. And how do we do that? by revealing his mercy towards us. His unmerited mercy towards us. And offer that mercy to others. Martha, do you believe? This is what I'm asking you to believe, Martha. Forget about his stinking carcass in the cave, Martha. You're going to find out here in just a minute, Martha, that that is not going to prevent me from being glorified. And then what does he do? He steps to the plate. He has a little prayer time with the Father. For their benefit, by the way. Not that he needed to reground his hope in the Father, but that for your benefit, for my benefit, we read these words and we go, this is where we take our grief. And then he says the words we all know. Lazarus, come out. Come out. And everyone around them is waiting with bated breath. What's going to happen here? Not sure. Um, This guy could prove himself to be pre loony when this is all said and done. And you can just imagine, by the way, I mean, this is complete conjecture, but you can just imagine people are standing there and it's all real quiet and all of a sudden they start hearing this little rustling coming out of the cave. And here comes this guy all mummified, wrapped up in his death clothing, and everyone in that, around that place just loses it. What has just happened? And that's exactly what happens. Lazarus comes forth and he's bound all up. And Jesus' next command is just as important as his first command. And you're not only called to rise and walk. You're called to be loosed from your clothing of death. Because it no longer is appropriate clothing for you. See, Adam... And Eve, when they disobeyed the Lord, they stapled leaves to themselves, and ever since then we've been stapling clothing of death to ourselves. And Jesus comes in; and he calls us to new life. He says, "Live so that death no longer reigns, and because death no longer reigns, you are now, and I am now called to shed the clo- the clothing of death. Shed it, friends, by faith, active." Faith. So, it's time to land a plane. I want to give you a couple thoughts I have, and then we're going to go to the table together. And I hope that these points I give you, and I'm going to give them to you very rapid fire, will serve you. One. Death serves the purposes of God. Amen. Only the believer can grasp that, by the way. Because we know that death is a result of sin and rebellion. Amen? We know this. It's a result of the fall. But please understand, just because it's a result of the fall, but does not mean that everything that has resulted from the fall still does not serve the purposes of a sovereign God. Death services, serv- yeah, uh, serves the purposes of God. Friends, death... No outmaneuvering of any person who's for or against Jesus can outmaneuver the mission of Jesus. Rest in that this morning. Two, Jesus confronts our duplicity of mind and he calls us to deeper rest than we've ever had before. Where is that alive and well in you this morning? Where you may be a little bit double-minded, maybe a little self-preservation-oriented willing to live your life as if death doesn't exist. No, where does God call you to face the the reality that the death clothes that you still are wearing and call you to shed them and to rest in his grace towards you? Three, Jesus enters into your grief and my grief, and he he will do it for eternity. But here's the wonderful thing about it is, grief ends at some point when Jesus returns. So he will enter into your grief right now until he returns forever and forever and forever. And he does that for his people. Jesus is not concerned with the other disciples who are other Jews who are mourning here. He's got his focus on two groups of people, his disciples who need to be corrected and these two sisters who are mourning. He enters into the grief of his people. If you are his this morning, his, his comfort and his consolation is available to you right now. Four, and I've already said this before many times in the sermon, he commands you and I to live in active faith. And then last, your sanctification, my sanctification, big word for your ongoing change in your life, is the process of the Spirit unbinding your life from the clothes of death. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is the process whereby through Christ's work and the ongoing ministry of the Spirit in your life, He is releasing you and me from the clothes, the clothing of death, that far too often identifies God's people. So friends, as we finish up and we come to the table this morning, my my call to us as we come to this table knowing that this table it's about death. It's about death. It's about the death of a son of God. Breaking his body, spilling his blood for you so that what? You and I could be rescued from death. But in order for us to be rescued from death, we must die to death. We must die the life of death by putting our faith in Christ and do so until he returns.